Hello, listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate 2. Monsters Advocate is a weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and any other sharp-toothed creature in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. So a quick disclaimer. This episode goes over some sensitive topics such as graphic descriptions of animal cruelty. I'll give you a heads up before the topic comes up, but please be advised that if you are listening with young children, you may want to skip this topic. Okay, so for today's episode, we'll be looking at man's best friend and the quiet judge and jury of humanity, the dog. The dog, Canis lupus familiaris, which by the way, great scientific name, is the oldest domesticated animal. While initially thought to be descended from the gray wolf, recent genetic studies have shown that dogs are actually more closely related to an extinct wolf-like canid that roamed Eurasia about 40,000 years ago. This ancestry places the domestication of dogs before the advent of agriculture. No other species has been with humanity longer. No other species has molded, and thanks to a uniquely elastic set of genes, been molded by us. So, what happens when the creation turns against the creator? What happens when the dog bites the hand that feeds it? First, let's start out with one of the most well-known monster dogs of all time. That's right, let's go back to ancient Greece and take a closer look at Cerberus. Cerberus, also named the Hound of Hades, is a monstrous three-headed dog that guards the gates of the underworld and prevents the dead from leaving and the living from sneaking in. He is the offspring of the monsters Echidna and Typhon, the dog of Hades, and briefly the dog of Heracles, and the brother of three other multi-headed monsters, including the Lernian Hydra, Orthus, and the Chimera. Also, he may have had spots. Typically, Cerberus is described as a three-headed black dog, with a serpent for a tail, and more snakes sneaking out of various other places for flair. In his earliest appearance in Hesod's Theogony, he had 50 dog heads, while Pindar, not to be outdone, gave him a hundred dog heads. After that, the three-headed dog look was almost universally agreed upon, until Horus gave poor Cerberus a single dog head and a hundred snake heads. But for our sake, let's say Cerberus has three heads and ignore all the snakes for a moment. What would those heads look like? What kind of dog is Cerberus? So, the dog breeds that most closely match Cerberus for time period and ferocity are the Molossus and the Alant, the still fiercely debated ancestors of modern Mastiff-type dogs. Both breeds are described as large, short-coated dogs with a wide, short muzzle. So, for our intents and purposes, Picture an English Mastiff, but with less wrinkles and also three heads. Now, what about those spots? While the etymology of the name Cerberus is still debated, one possible origin is the Proto-Indo-European word Kerberos, meaning spotted, which actually makes things more confusing, because unlike Dalmatians, Mastiff and Mastiff-type dogs typically never have any spots. Mastiff coats can be brindle, which is typically described as a tiger-striped pattern, consisting of irregular streaks of darker color on a lighter coat, but that's not really spotting. So, maybe Cerberus was piebald. Briefly, a piebald animal is an animal with a pattern of pigmented spots on an unpigmented background of fur, hair, feathers, or scales. Unlike true spotting on a Dalmatian, it's a recessive trait, a recessive trait that can occur in mastiffs. So, if Cerberus really is piebald, he's got a lot going for him. Not only does he have snakes, like, all over his body and three heads, he also apparently has a recessive gene. 
So yeah, next time someone asks you to draw that same old boring three-headed Cerberus from Hercules, you're ready to blow their minds. Taking a break from ancient Greece, let's jump to Japan for a dog-like creature which, in my opinion, is much scarier and sadder than Cerberus. Just a quick note and a heads up, I apologize in advance for how truly badly I'm going to botch my pronunciation of the following Japanese. I have a hard enough time with English words, so I can only imagine how cringeworthy this is going to be for our Japanese listeners. Deeply sorry in advance. Also, this is the part the disclaimer up top was about. Sensitive listeners and young children may want to skip this next part, and I'll let you know when it's okay to tune back in. The Inugami, which translates to dog god, are a class of beings belonging to the spirits called kami in Japanese mythology. The Inugami are generally malicious beings described as being anthropomorphic werewolf-like beings with a dog's head. They are said to be masters of black magic and are often responsible for kidnappings, murders, and mutilation of victims. Which, to be honest, sounds pretty bad. But like any attack dog, they aren't doing these things because it's natural. Behind every Inugami is something much scarier. There's a person who created it. You see, the Inugami belong to that unique class of monsters that are directly created by humans. Inugami are created using Anmyoji, which is a mix of cosmology, natural science, and occultism similar to alchemy. The would-be evoker must first obtain a common dog. It doesn't specify any particular breed. The dog is buried up to its neck, leaving its head free, and a bowl of food or water is placed just out of reach. After several days, and this next part is truly awful, Right before the dog is about to die, the evoker cuts off its head and buries it under a busy street. After an unknown period of time, the head and the body are placed in a well-prepared shine, and an inugami is evoked. This is where the crime element comes in. The evoker keeps the inugami in their household, and when they need a particularly nasty job done, they send out their new dog god to take care of it. Interestingly, households that have an inugami in them are known as inugami mochi, or those who own a dog god. And it's traditional for Inugami Mochi to marry fellow Inugami Mochi. Which, assuming you created an Inugami to commit particularly violent crimes for you, makes these families like the Mafia, but way scarier. Apparently, well-trained summoners that send out their new awful crime dog may even have the ability to possess and manipulate their Inugami's target through the Inugami itself. Victims of an Inugami attack, if they lived, purportedly either go insane or commit suicide. But all that power comes at a pretty steep price. You see, the Inugami remembers how it was created, and if the Inugami evoker isn't careful, vengeful Inugami have been known to slip their summoner's control and kill them. I assume the Inugami never shows mercy on this particular point. After all, you can't teach an old dog god new tricks. Sensitive listeners and children can tune back in now. Our last topic for this episode will be another of my favorites, Black Shuck. Black Shuck is both a contemporary cryptid and a folklore monster from a part of England known as East Anglia. Black Shuck, Old Shuck, or sometimes simply Shuck, is most commonly described as a large, shaggy black dog which ranges in size from calf-sized to horse-sized. Typically, Shuck is described as having either large red or green eyes. In more uncommon variants, Old Shuck can also be described as having a single cycloptic red or green eye, or just skipping the head part altogether. He is said to be an ill omen, which I can see why you'd think that, especially if you saw the headless one. One of the earliest sightings of this creature is a devil sighting on the same day, one at the Holy Trinity Church of Blytheburg 
and one at St. Mary's Church of Bungay. On August 4th, 1577, in a clap of thunder, a gigantic black dog burst through the doors of the Holy Trinity Church. The large black dog ran past the nave, raced past the congregation, killed a man and boy, and caused the church steeple to collapse through the roof. Apparently, as the dog ran back out of the church, he left scorch marks on the north door. He then decided to jog to St. Mary's Church, and as before, the dog ran up the body of St. Mary's Church, ran through the congregation, and purportedly wrung the necks of two people kneeling in prayer as he passed them, killing them instantly. Now, dogs aren't typically particularly pro- or anti-religion, so why go after churchgoers? Well, it may have something to do with the practice of church grims. You see, church grims which appear in both English and Scandinavian folklore, are said to be an attendant spirit that oversees the welfare of a particular church. In some early Christian traditions, it was believed that the first man to be buried in the hollowed ground of a churchyard had to guard it against the devil. Forever. Because no one wanted to volunteer to do this for eternity, and because humanity is excellent at finding loopholes, to save a human soul from this duty, a completely black dog would be buried alive on the north side of a churchyard. This unwitting volunteer, once it eventually died, would become the new church grim, which, hmm, black dog, north side of the church, hey, maybe we should just all stop burying dogs alive. Luckily, it seems that black shuck has mellowed out with age. Accounts from the 19th and 20th century have Shuck guiding lost travelers back to the road, accompanying women down dark lanes, and in one case just running along a cyclist for a while. It seems even after experiencing the worst, old Shuck still wants to just be man's best friend. Which is pretty lucky for us. So, that is going to do it this week for dogs. If you want to know more about any of the stories, check out the show notes. Intro music is by Scott Effington, and audio editing is by Alex Sauerbrunn. If you like what you heard, please rate and review on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster.